to represent uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as, uh, as uh, the king of the Jews. Uh, Mark, it, it takes a little different approach. Mark uh, was a co-laborer of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a little bit. But towards the end of Paul's ministry, uh, Mark becomes very profitable to the Apostle Paul and is actually with him uh, during his uh, imprisonment in Rome as he gets to the end of his life and end of his ministry. And uh, more than likely, Mark wrote this uh, gospel while he was there in Rome with the, the Apostle Paul. He was a fellow laborer to uh, the, primarily to the Jewish ministry that Paul had. And so as a result of that, uh, his gospel is directed more specifically towards Gentiles, uh, the writings of it. In fact, uh, we see some of that evidenced in the fact that he does not deal with any of the genealogies of the Lord Jesus Christ because to the Gentiles that wasn't uh, something that made a big difference or mattered. And a lot of the Jewish customs, a lot of the uh, prophecies that had been given to the Jewish people regarding the coming Messiah are not dealt with in the book of Mark. Uh, in fact, uh, it's interesting that uh, in the first ten chapters, he, he, he doesn't even really deal with the childhood of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Uh, he begins pretty much with the baptism uh, of Jesus Christ in the beginning of his earthly ministry. That's where Mark's gospel begins. And um, the interesting fact is from chapter 11 to chapter 16, the last about probably 40% of the book or so, uh, is narrowed in and focused on the final eight days of the Lord Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. And so a large portion, a uh, very large portion and emphasis of this book uh, is given to the uh, sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his burial, his resurrection, and uh, what that means. And uh, so Mark is a, is a very interesting gospel. It's very different from the other three uh, in that area. Mark is... Um, uh, is one of the uh, fellows that uh, was probably uh, influenced very strongly by uh, Peter. And uh, chances are that Peter uh, was the one who was instrumental in Mark coming to uh, be saved. And Peter refers to him as his son. And uh, because of that, a lot of people believe that Peter is the one that was instrumental in leading him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Mark was, um, his Hebrew name was John. Some people refer to him as John Mark. Or, uh, he was the cousin of, if you'll remember back uh, to Barnabas and Saul and Paul and how that Barnabas went and, and kind of recruited the Apostle Paul for that first missionary journey. Uh, John Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And uh, he journeyed with Paul and Barnabas when they came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And then uh, later on, when they went on their first missionary journey, he began that journey. Uh, but shortly after it began, he returned back to Jerusalem. And as a result of that, uh, the Apostle Paul didn't have a lot of respect for him. Uh, in fact, when it came time for Barnabas and Paul to go on their second missionary journey, uh, Barnabas wanted to once again take John Mark. And, uh, and Paul refused, if you remember the story. And there was a contention that was so strong that Barnabas and, and Paul ended up splitting and, and dividing out. And Barnabas went on his own missionary journey and took John Mark with him. And that's where Paul uh, joins up with Silas. And Paul and Silas then go on the second missionary journey. So that's kind of the background of the author of this particular gospel. Uh, even though 
John Mark was, uh, uh, he, he neglected the ministry, it seems like, in the early part. And according to Paul, uh, he felt that, that John Mark was one of these fellows who turned back in the day of battle that kind of uh, didn't have the character that he needed. Uh, he does later in his ministry, about 12 years later, uh, he writes uh, about how profitable Mark had been to him in the ministry. And uh, I just there's a great lesson, I think, to be learned in that, and that is don't ever give up on somebody. Uh, it's interesting that Barnabas, uh, of all people, seemed to have that gift of going and finding people who maybe the first time around had not succeeded very well. If you'll remember the Apostle Paul, when he first got saved, he went to Jerusalem. He was among the apostles for, uh, the Bible says he was with them coming and going, meaning he was with them all the time. And uh, it, it became such a, 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 a hardship for the apostles, they sent him home uh, for two years. He uh, went to Tarsus and uh, was there for about two years. And uh, when it came time for them to send somebody, Barnabas, if you'll remember, is the one who recommended the Apostle Paul and said, I'll, I'll go get him and, and we'll take him. We'll go do this missionary journey. Barnabas had a gift, of, I think, of the Lord Jesus Christ to um, encourage, uh, to edify those that were discouraged in ministry perhaps that had maybe not succeeded their first time around. And it seems to me that both with the Apostle Paul and with his work with John Mark, his cousin, uh, that this seems to be a trend with Barnabas. And I think there's a great lesson to be learned there. I think a lot of us could learn a lot from Barnabas uh, in that aspect, that even though someone didn't succeed the first time around doesn't mean that they don't need the encouragement and the strength uh, and that they can become profitable down the road. And uh, then I think we can learn a lot from John Mark. I mean, obviously he was a little more immature early on in ministry, but he grew. He took that experience and he grew. He didn't let that keep him down. And later in life, he was much more profitable to the ministry. And so, uh, again, the importance of growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the maturity of that, I think, is pictured just uh, before we even get into the book of Mark, just by his testimony, his character, the authorship of it, and, um, and, and the, importance that he, uh, the important role that he played in, in a lot of places here. Mark primarily uh, pictures the Lord Jesus Christ as a servant. Uh, over and over again, you'll find that he deals with the fact that Christ was obedient to the will of his Father. And he puts more emphasis on this than any other uh, gospel. Uh, he's very direct in his approach. He speaks of the fact of Christ's obedience to his Father's will and the fact that he needs to be about his Father's will. And he uses two words in his, in his gospel. Uh, they are immediately and straightway, those two words. Uh, he uses them 42 times in his gospel. And it is more times than all of the rest of the New Testament put together. And it gives the idea that not only was Christ a servant, but he was diligent and he was fervent in doing the will of his Father and getting it done and accomplishing it. And uh, Mark pictures this very clearly, the way he writes his book um, and uh, how he goes about dealing with this. His book is basically divided into two parts. Uh, within that, there are some probably some crossovers of some things, but you could pretty much divide Mark into two, two sections. Uh, we have, first of all, chapters 1 through 10, and this would deal primarily with um, uh, Christ being portrayed as... Uh, 
uh, a servant, a humble servant. Uh, again, if you say, well, I, don't just, I just don't see Christ as a servant. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said that uh, he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And so there's no doubt that Christ, even though he was the Son of God, even though he was the King of the Jews, he also came as a servant. And uh, to illustrate and to show us how we need to serve one another, how we need to have a kind-hearted uh, um, and, and a desire uh, to help one another and to serve uh, one another. Christ is a tremendous example in this, and Mark is probably one of the best Gospels to use to deal with that particular subject of the Lord Jesus Christ being our example as a servant. Uh, in chapters 1 through 10, he begins the book, with two events in chapter 1. The first one is uh, the baptism of, uh, of Jesus by John the Baptist. Uh, he starts the book off pretty much with that one. Uh, and then uh, he also deals with his uh, temptation by Satan. Uh, and then Christ, of course, launches into his earthly ministry just on the heels of that. Within the chapters 1 through 10, there's a, a, another division that takes place that's under kind of that main heading of the Lord Jesus Christ being pictured as a servant. And in chapters 1 through 4, uh, Mark puts more of an emphasis on uh, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, what it is that he's teaching uh, people and his disciples, uh, the things that he says. But as we get to the latter part of the, uh, the first section, uh, chapters 5 through probably around seven or eight, somewhere in that area, uh, you'll notice that there's a very strong emphasis on uh, the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would contain a lot of the miracles. I think Mark has 12 of them, I think, uh, of the miracles of Christ listed in his, in his gospel, uh, something along that. And again, there's, there's some crossover between that. There will be some words of Christ that are emphasized in chapters 5 through 7. There will probably be a miracle or two that are listed in chapters 1 through 4. But for the most part, they're kind of subdivided into those two sections. From chapter 5 on, when the Lord Jesus Christ begins to emphasize more, or Mark begins to deal with more of the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, His miracles, His validation, you'll find that the shift of the Lord Jesus Christ's intent, according to Mark's gospel, shifts at that period of time, around the time that, uh, Peter said, Thou art the Christ. And it seems to hinge around that pivotal point. Um, he goes from trying to uh, validate that he is the Messiah uh, to the multitudes and to his disciples to the fact that when Peter says, Thou art the Christ, he realizes, okay, they, they know that I am the Christ. And so from that point on, he then begins to deal with preparing his disciples for the persecution and the service that they will need to render uh, in uh, his upcoming death, his burial, his resurrection, and what the disciples will have to endure uh, for his sake. So he, he spends the, the last part of that first section uh, from chapters 5 through the end of the cha chapter 10. Uh, he deals primarily with preparing his disciples um, for what's to come and kind of getting them ready. Um, he uh, let's look in uh, chapter eight and verse number thirty-one, and this is probably the if you had to point to one singular verse that's kind of a pivotal point, a turning point in this book, it would have to be I think uh, Mark chapter eight and verse number thirty-one. Uh, the Bible says, uh, 
uh, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that, saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the disciples unto him, uh, with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And so again, he's transitioning into trying to teach his disciples um, what's to come. That if they try to save their life, they'll lose it. If they try to, uh, if they'll lose their life, they'll gain it. And teaching them from a servant's heart. These are things they're going to have to endure. And this seems to be kind of the, the transitional place uh, where he switches gears and begins to teach his disciples of the cost of their discipleship and what they're going to have to endure. Uh, and uh, this is the point where he finally reveals to him also his, uh, very specifically, very distinctly, his death and his burial and his resurrection. They don't understand it completely at this point. Uh, but this is where Christ begins to reveal it to him very clearly. The second section of the book, so we dealt with chapters 1 through 10, the second section of the book uh, deals with the Lord Jesus Christ being portrayed as the sacrifice. And the first part of it, of course, was dealing with him being portrayed as uh, the, this, the servant uh, and how he served others. Um, and uh, the last portion of the, of the book, uh, chapter 11 through chapter 16, deals with the last... A uh, couple of weeks uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a large portion of that, most of that, is dealing with the final eight days uh, before the crucifixion. So a large portion, of it, uh, just a, uh, uh, more so than any of the other Gospels, uh, Mark puts a huge emphasis on those last and final eight days. And um, in this section, he uh, begins to describe those that uh, are progressively becoming more hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. It's amazing to me how many people during that time period... Uh, I mean, here's, here's Christ who, if you look at what he's doing in his ministry, he's not doing anything evil. He's healing people. He's teaching them to love one another, to be forgiving of one another, to have kindness one towards another. And these folks that are stirred up in these chapters hate him. Uh, they can't stand him. And uh, there's, I think, two reasons for this. I believe, first of all, that because they were influenced by the devil himself. I believe that any time God's work is, is doing something, Satan can't stand it. And he is going to raise up opposition by those that are able to be influenced by him. We see that in the world today. I mean, how many times have we watched, even in recent days, the volatility, the, the violence, the, the rioting that takes place um, against folks that are trying to do good things, uh, things that will benefit even the people, the very people that are rioting against them and are in their best interest. And we see this over and over again in society. Um, how often when it is seemingly Satan-induced, uh, there is chaos, there is confusion, there is rioting, there is drunkenness, there's revelings. Uh, I'm reminded back of 
uh, the story when Elijah uh, challenged the prophets of Baal. And uh, they put them to the test. And he said, call on your God to call down fire from heaven. I'll call on mine to call down fire from heaven. It was a simple challenge. And yet, what did the prophets of Baal do? Uh, because the fire didn't come, they began to get up on the, the altar and to cut themselves. And the Bible says that the blood gushed out. And uh, there was violence there. There was confusion there. There was chaos there. And then when Elijah called down fire from heaven, what did he do? Did he get up and do all those same things? No. He knelt down and prayed a simple prayer. And God, with great uh, organization, uh, with no chaos, with no confusion at all, with great clarity, He answered Elijah in power and in might. And you'll find that this, this chaotic nature, whenever it's around, God is not the author of confusion. The Bible talks about that very, very clearly. And... Um, so these last several chapters of Mark, he depicts a lot of these people that are becoming very uh, angry. Uh, they're falsely accusing the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, he starts off by dealing with the chief priests. And of all the people in this list that he gives, you would think of all the people that would not be involved in this, it would be the religious leaders of the day. I mean, could you imagine uh, that religious leaders would be doing things contrary to God and to His work? And then, uh, of course, you know, we find that not only were these folks being uh, contrary to the work of God, but uh, look at the life of the Apostle Paul before he got saved. Even he, in sincerity and believing, he was doing God a favor. And by the way, I will say this. I do believe that some of the chief priests really thought that they were holding the truth of God. They were angry at Christ for claiming He was the Son of God because that was a, a capital offense to the Jews. You weren't allowed to do that unless you were the Son of God. And in that case, you were. And Christ had every right to claim that. But because of that thing, they and I think there were probably even maybe some misled and misguided and just confused priests that were sincere in their hatred towards Christ. But I believe there were many of them that were just literally, uh, their eyes were closed, they were blinded uh, by Satan, and uh, they did not see Christ as the Messiah. Um, but by the way, let me just say this. As we look at those examples in Scripture, that even sincere religious-minded, well-meaning people, it is possible for them to be wrong and to be actually going against the things of the Lord, that we need to be all the more careful to make sure that we are in line with Scripture, that we are not in sincerity and in full-hearted belief that we're doing right, that we are not in actuality kicking against the pricks. And so it is vitally important that we come to Scripture we don't analyze ourselves by uh, the other Christian down the road. We don't, we don't compare ourselves to how far of a distance we are from the world. We don't justify the way that we live because we're not as bad as they are. That is not our rule of measurement. Our rule of measurement must always come back to, is it in line and in agreement with Scripture? Uh, very critical. Uh, but he talks about the, the chief priests. And then he deals with the scribes, of course, who hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the elders 
uh, men that were uh, the, the leaders of society of that day had some uh, influence in their culture. Uh, again, these men were, <coughs> were uh, hating God, and whether or not they were led that way by the leadership of uh, the chief priests, I don't know. Uh, but I believe that certainly it had some influence on them. Uh, the Pharisees, of course, uh, the Herodians, the Sadducees, he talks about all of these folks uh, having a hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see that uh, very very uh, clearly seen in those last chapters, uh, from chapter 11 through chapter 16, he deals with that. And then um, he, he in that period of, of, of his gospel, in that last section of it, he gives probably one of the most vivid accounts of Christ's willingness to go through the abuse, the crucifixion, and to bear the, the sins of humanity. And he probably does more so to picture this in those last several chapters than any of the other Gospels. Uh, the, the suffering, the servanthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bowing to His Father's will, probably more so in the book of Mark than in any of the other Gospels. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a, an arguable point. My opinion is I think Mark does more so to picture this than any of the other three uh, Gospels. Not that the other three don't. It's just Mark really brings that emphasis home. Uh, the obedience of Christ, the willingness to follow His Father's will, and the idea of being a servant. I've already given you a little bit of the background of Mark. <clears throat> uh, let's look at a couple verses uh, Acts chapter 12 and uh, verse number 12. Uh, we'll see uh, a little bit more of his uh, where he came from. Uh, Mark's mother was Mary, uh, and this was the Mary, if you'll remember back, uh, that had the large house where many times the early Christians would gather for prayer. And when Peter was imprisoned and sentenced to die, uh, this is where they gathered. They gathered at, uh, at Mary's house. This was John Mark's mother. Uh, and, of course, the angel came and delivered Peter from the prison. And he shows up at the gate of Mary's house. And uh, the little servant girl goes down to answer it. And he says, I'm Peter. And she doesn't even let him in. She just runs and tells him. And so this is just to give you an idea of, of how Mark is related and how closely he's tied and the influence that Peter had on him. Uh, they were very, very close. Uh, and I believe that one of the biggest reasons that Mark's account is given credibility and is included in our Scripture is because it was um, validated as having apostolic authority because of Peter's influence on his account. Uh, obviously, almost all of the source uh, of the book of Mark had to have come probably from Peter himself as an eyewitness of these events. But let's look in Acts chapter 12. In uh, verse number 12, uh, let's back up verse number 11, Acts chapter 12, verse 11. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the uh, expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So this is the verse that tells us a little bit about Mark's background and who he was related to. And so you can kind of... Start piecing the pieces of the puzzle of the New Testament together and seeing how things connect here. Uh, that Mark was, uh, the, the author of our gospel, Mark, was the son of Mary, who was uh, instrumental in Peter's ministry and was a great blessing to Peter throughout the years that he served and labored. 
Um, of course, we already mentioned that he was the, the cousin of Barnabas. And uh, in Colossians chapter 4, you can read about that. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 10. Uh, how that he was included in the first missionary journey. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, I want us to see this very quickly. Let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter number 5. And uh, let's look in verse number 13. The church that is at Babylon elect together with you, uh, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. And so again, Peter refers to Mark here as uh, his son. And so more than likely, uh, I mean, we can't say with absolute certainty, but the, the fact that he refers to him as his son is similar to uh, Paul referring to Titus as his son uh, in meaning that he was the one who was instrumental in leading him to Christ. And so because of this uh, mention by Peter of Mark, uh, we believe that uh, Peter was probably, if not the one that led him to Christ, at least was strongly influential in bringing him to Christ. Um, there was a very close relationship there. Um, I'm not going to read. I'm going to, for sake of time, we're going to move through a couple of these uh, notes here. Uh, Acts chapter 13 uh, through Acts chapter 15, you'll find an account of Barnabas and Paul. And you'll find in those chapters, if you want to take some time to go back and study through all of those, you'll find um, a lot of references to Mark, uh, again, dealing with his forsaking them in the first missionary journey. You'll see uh, how that, again, uh, Barnabas wanted to take him even after he had forsaken them the first time. He had uh, wanted to take him again and how that that was a point of contention with the Apostle Paul. You'll find that account uh, in Acts chapter 13 through Acts chapter 15. So if you'd like to study that and know a little bit more about that so you know a little bit more about uh, his background. There was about a 12-year uh, difference between the time that John Mark left them on the first missionary journey and forsook them till the time that Paul was writing in Colossians chapter number 4. And let's look there very quickly. Colossians chapter number 4. Colossians chapter number 4, and Paul at this point is in uh, Roman captivity. He is nearing the end of his ministry. He pretty well knows that unless God delivers him uh, miraculously, more than likely he was uh, going to be leaving soon. And uh, in Colossians chapter number 4, uh, and uh, let's look in verse number, um, verse number in, uh, 7. Let's start in verse number 7. All my state shall Tychicus... Declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort of your hearts, uh, comfort your hearts, uh, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. By the way, I just want to stop here for a moment. This isn't part of uh, the study of Mark. But if you want to study an interesting character, he's only mentioned a few times in the New Testament, uh, but how, how much this character Aristarchus uh, was used. He's not mentioned much, but, uh, boy, he did a, a great work and was faithful. Uh, he was alongside of the Apostle Paul all the way up until his death. And um, tremendous fellow. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And uh, Marcus... Sister, son to Barnabas. So again, we know that this is the same Mark. Uh, he's the cousin to Barnabas. Touching whom you received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. Uh, 
and Jesus, which is called Justice, uh, who are uh, of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, uh, which have been a comfort unto me. And so again, uh, Mark has been a comfort. He's been a, a fellow prisoner. He's been a uh, fellow uh, laborer with the Apostle Paul, and he is there with Paul uh, during his uh, Roman uh, captivity. And, uh, oh, let's see here. <clears throat> Mark was probably the first of the Gospels to be written as far as chronologically. It talks about the coming destruction of the temple, uh, which happened in 70 A.D., so we know that the book was written prior to that. More than likely, uh, there are some people who believe it happened prior to uh, Peter's uh, martyrdom, and some people believe it was after that. But more than likely, it took place at least between 55 and 65 A.D., within about a 10-year period there, is when the book was uh, more than likely written. It certainly was written prior to uh, 70 A.D. because the fall of the temple had not yet taken place. The Christ of Mark, how Christ is pictured in Mark, of course, we've already mentioned that he very vividly pictures Christ as the obedient servant, um, and not just in a spiritual sense, but more than any of the other books of the New Testament, uh, Mark deals with the fact that Christ not only met the spiritual needs of people, but he also met the physical needs of people. And it's not to say that other books don't deal with that too. Mark does more so. Uh, and the importance of ministering both to the physical and to the spiritual needs of people. Uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, did this. I already mentioned that he uses the word immediately and straightway 42 different times in his book, uh, indicating the uh, diligence of Christ to fulfill his Father's will, the importance that he gave to it. Uh, He wanted to uh, uh, be able to finish uh, the work that his Father had given to him. And again, as as an example, I think it is a wonderful uh, illustration to you and I of the diligence I, uh, in studying for this uh, this particular lesson, I several times this week uh, just spent some time uh, in a quiet place just thinking through some of the things. And, um, and, and, you know, a thought has come back to me a couple times this week that has just really been eating at my heart. And that is uh, the immediately, the straightway, the, the urgency that the Lord Jesus Christ put on accomplishing the work that His Father had given Him to do. And then I began to think through my everyday life. And am I that urgent to accomplish Christ's work in this world? Lord willing, next hour we'll be talking about uh, preaching on uh, a subject that has been born out of that thought. and I, and I just, I guess the, 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 the thing that stirs my heart is how often we fritter away the time that we have. And then we wonder why Christ's work is not being accomplished the way that we know He would long for it to be accomplished. How much time we waste. And when Mark puts this kind of an emphasis on Christ being diligent, being fervent, pushing forward. And I understand that there were even times that Christ came apart and rested physically. And I'm not saying that we can't ever rest. 
But we waste so much time with non-important issues of life that could be given to doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, anyway, uh, the, the key to Mark and the theme of the book, if you take the overall theme, is Christ the Servant. Key verses are chapter 10. Let's turn there, Mark chapter number 10. And uh, let's look in verse number 42 to start with. Mark chapter 10 and verse number 42. Mark chapter 10, verse number 42. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. Whosoever will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Probably the most vivid portion of Mark that illustrates and pictures uh, the servitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not come to be ministered to, but to minister. And, um, and then he said in verse number 44, Whosoever of you will be chiefest shall be servant of all. And then uh, the second uh, set of key verses, I think, in Mark uh, is found in Mark chapter 8. And we've already read some of these. Mark chapter number 8. Uh, verse 34, uh, down through uh, verse number 37. And again, we've already read those, so I won't take the time to uh, read those again. I, well, I, I'm not sure if we read these. or Yeah, I guess we read these. And when he called his people unto him, uh, the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And I believe that these two passages uh, are very key to the understanding of the overall book uh, of the Gospel of Mark. Chapter number 8 is kind of the key chapter. It's a turning point, a transition point. After Peter's confession that thou art the Christ, we see that there's a change in the emphasis of Christ trying to validate that He is the Messiah, to now preparing and, and kind of equipping His disciples for what lies ahead. Uh, and uh, prior to this, it was it was more words and trying to uh, teach the uh, disciples who He was. And then from that point on, once He knew that they knew who He was, then He was trying to get them ready uh, for what was to come. So I hope that will help you uh, as we go to study the book of Mark. It helps us to know a little bit of this background and uh, how it fits. And uh, some of the lessons that are taught uh, are more vividly remembered, understanding some of this. And then some of them are better understood even, understanding some of the context and the setting of the book. So I hope that will help you. Uh, let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it. And, Lord, as we leave here, may we leave with it upon our hearts and our minds. May we remember these things, and may they be a help to us as we go to your Word and as we study these books. I pray that you would help us to uh, have a fuller and a better understanding of the uh, lessons that are taught. May they be easy.